Broadcasting from the capital, British Columbia, this is West Coast Views. We would like to acknowledge that West Coast Views is recorded on the traditional territory of the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Masonic people. everyone. Welcome to West Coast Views. Uh, my name is Christina. I'm going to be hosting today and I am joined by Nathan and by Mark. Thank you both for uh, coming and being on the show. Thanks for hosting. Yeah, you're Thank very you. welcome. Yeah, no problem. Um, so today we're going to be talking about transportation as our broad topic, but we're going to get into a couple of specific areas. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about ride hailing and the cancellation of Greyhound in British Columbia. Uh, and I really want us to get started with ride hailing because ride hailing is something that the BC Greens have really been at the forefront of. Um, Andrew Weaver has been introducing legislation. He first introduced legislation in 2016 to the BC Liberal government. Uh, neither the BC Liberals nor the BC NDP picked it up or did anything with it at that point. Uh, it wasn't until the election campaign in 2017 where Christy Clark had a change of heart on the campaign trail and decided that ride hailing was absolutely the thing that should come to British Columbia and we really needed to make sure that we got it in and that was going to be something that happened under a BC Liberal government. So uh, that obviously didn't come to pass, but the BC Greens have really kept pushing forward on wanting to make sure that ride hailing is regulated. Because something that I want to point out is that it is not that we do not have ride hailing in British Columbia. What we do not have is we do not have any regulations for ride hailing in British Columbia. So big companies like Uber and Lyft that are big enough to actually identify and go after legally are not operating, but there are a plethora of smaller independent ride hailing companies that are using apps in definitely Metro Vancouver and other areas of the province. Uh, and they're just skating by. There's nobody that's really in charge of enforcing anything on them. They're able to get around and not be part of the taxi industry regulations. Um, so they're, they're already in competition with the taxi industry. And what we're really looking for is making sure that ride hailing in British Columbia is safe, uh, is that it's regulated, and that we have a framework that is fair and understandable to everybody. Okay, so now we are, you know, far past the election. Uh, it has come to pass that the BC NDP have said, yeah, they're going to do ride hailing. Now they pushed it off, off until the fall of this year. Uh, now it's come to pass that they have said, actually, it's not going to be until next year that they're going to allow uh, companies like Uber and Lyft to start applying to be part of ride hailing in British Columbia. There is also some talk within the taxi industry of how they're going to try to, mm, I don't want to say compete, because really what they're suggesting is creating this very interesting monopoly app that Uber and Lyft and the taxi industry representatives will all like co-manage and uh, all be a part of and that's their idea of an equal playing field so uh, Mark Nathan what do you think about what's been happening with ride hailing in the past week well for myself I, I didn't even know that we had these smaller apps in existence operating already and competing with the taxi industry already um, when I first saw the news here and I, I mean I've, I've used Uber and Lyft in major cities um, it made sense that we would get it here. I'm not a user of uh, public transportation at this time um, uh, and or a user of taxis um, very often for the reason that they're expensive and uh, Victoria takes about 20 minutes to get from where I live to places where I need to go where there's uh, a lot of services or amenities. Um, when I saw that uh, the, the taxi industry wanted to modernize with an app, I go, oh, okay. I mean, they hadn't done that already? 
Well, I'm just, what I'm so confused about is I've, like, I know people who used to run, like, impromptu taxi services. Like, they would just pick people up for, like, 20 bucks, give them a ride home from the, the bars. So we clearly, we need to do something about it because we're just having complete informal parts of the economy popping up. You know, we're not regulating it. We're not taxing it. We can't ensure that the people taking the cabs are safe. We can't ensure that the drivers themselves are safe. They don't have uh, potentially appropriate insurance. So there's a lot of factors in here that, that aren't being taken into account because we aren't, we aren't doing anything about it. And the fact that we, I mean, I never take the cab, just like Mark. Um, the only time is very recent, or very infrequently. And so we already know that there are parts of an informal economy forming. Uh, around this because we're not we're not taking action to address this this transportation concern that bc has remember that mayor bogota who said that um, the mark of a, a developed country is not that all poor people have cars but rich people take public transportation i mean if, if a concern is that uh, we're going to have more congestion as a result of ride hailing um, then why not develop these other public transit options um, but also we saw that with the TransLink referendum, right? So that was like an offloading of responsibility. The government didn't want to say, hey, we're going to have to tax you a bunch, um, so we're going to put it to a referendum, which, of course, allows uh, stakeholders um, who don't want to share, essentially, who don't see themselves as, uh, as stakeholders or partners in a society, um, come in with their, with their information uh, to disseminate to people, to convince them that it's, in fact, uh, going to be awful for them to have to pay for a, 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 an upgrade in their transportation system. It's interesting that you bring up the congestion mark. Uh, it's definitely something that the all-member committee looking into ride hailing has brought up. So MLA Spencer Chandra Herbert has actually spoken on this and brought up the concern that, you know, increasing ride hailing and getting more people in their cars, driving people around isn't necessarily what we need in definitely in urban areas. Um, so there was the report that came out this week on the taxi industry and modernizing the taxi industry. And one of the recommendations was to immediately add another 200 vehicles. And that brings up issues of um, well, how are we going to support more cars on our roads? And is that really the solution to our transit needs? So I, I like how you're bringing in that, you know, we need to be looking at what kind of mass transit options we have because bringing it down to the individual level isn't really dealing with transporting mass amounts of people around in urban areas. Yeah, I'm actually all for um, making our major arteries uh, entirely bike lanes. And uh, simply because I, I, I think we're so privileged here that anything to foment conflict, um, I mean, what a, it's such a ridiculous little bubble that we, we have this conflict between cyclists and drivers to the extent that we do. The comments on Facebook alone are so uh, egregious. Um, I think anything that's going to make that worse is actually kind of fun. Oh, well, see, I, I like the idea of having separated bicycle lanes. I do agree that that's a great transportation option. Uh, at the same time, we really need to be sensitive to the fact that that's not going to be an option that works for everyone. And one of the concerns that comes up with ride hailing is how do we actually preserve access for people that have different levels of ability, uh, for people that perhaps need uh, some kind of aid for their mobility uh, and making sure that whatever transportation methods are available are still accessible. Uh, and this is something that the taxi industry itself has struggled with. Uh, recently, there was a call from a mayor over on the Lower Mainland that said, you know, we need to improve this service because there was a woman in a wheelchair who was waiting at 1 a.m. And, you know, it can be a very dangerous situation. I mean, you're isolated, um, sitting, waiting for a ride, and she was waiting for hours outside for a cab that, you know, she 
could have had access to earlier if she had not had a wheelchair. It's different times of year that you're looking at this for people. So it's not always something that is as nice as perhaps July and Victoria, you know, July and Victoria, perhaps for somebody that's healthy and able-bodied is a, you know, it's a nice evening out, but for somebody that, you know, has already had a long day and is waiting for a cab and does not feel exactly the same uh it's it's well, a different situation up, yeah and you're, you're bringing up actually a, a fantastic point because when we think of ride hailing we're thinking of it in terms of convenience we're not thinking of it in terms of access which is what for so for people with disabilities people uh, uh in in wheelchairs say um that's a, that's a hugely important facet of it that we're overlooked uh, is there anything further about that like any studies that were done about uh uh how many people with disabilities um access uh, transportation services and whether those are, are overloaded um, or under serviced or underfunded in any way. Um, so things like the, uh, the handy dart system that we have. Um, so this would be adding options to that. Um, and there might actually even be some specialization from, uh, uh, I mean, when you talk about like a, a, an apps, the, any of these apps here that, that have come about um, that are actually doing the ride hailing, um, maybe some of them could be specialized for distinct for people with uh with wheelchairs or distinct for people with um, developmental disabilities but couldn't cab companies also do the same thing if we want them to have specialized vehicles i'd almost think that they would have a greater ability to do so because they're a, they are a company they have more resources to pull upon where i mean i've only taken uber a whole one time in toronto um but i i'm pretty sure that they supply their own vehicles the drivers so it might be a lot tougher to get uh accessible vehicles for uh well, do we, do we know that taxi services have apps right now? I mean, do we know that, you know, any of these ones here? So, I mean, if, if this is how late in the game they are modernizing, um, I mean, because what's the underlying thing here is that there, there's an industry that's already established. Um, there's the vested interest in this case. And um, do they have an incentive to innovate and modernize without that competition? No, probably not. They don't because uh, I don't know any mobile apps for uh, for cab companies. Um, well, but it doesn't really address the the accessibility thing that we just brought up, though, right? Because I mean, a mobile app it it only makes it more convenient to order something. But you can call them and ask for an accessible cab all the same as when you would call them for a regular cab, anyways. And there have been like work. There has been work on developing apps by different um, areas of the taxi industry. And different t taxi companies have looked into it. It just hasn't really gotten very far um they're as you're saying mark they are very late to the game uh, and they're not bringing the same resources as a tech-based company like uber or lyft or a variety of other small startups that can just focus on the technology and the app um, now speaking specifically about accessibility uh, the legislation that has been proposed by Andrew Weaver actually has measures that would regulate accessibility and make sure that it's actually a part of ride hailing so that we know that there is some standard of accessibility that's being maintained in all of the services that are being offered to British Columbians. Uh, so the other, the other thing that this kind of brings to mind as well is that this is really uh, a temporary situation that we have here where we're going to even be looking at individuals driving cars as a side business as part of an app. I mean, this we're talking about how quickly technology changes and shifts. British Columbia is already far, far behind on ride hailing technology. Uh, and at the same time, there is even newer technology that's coming down the pipeline, like self-automated cars.
cars that are driving themselves. Uh, we're already seeing it with trucking. So this is something that the Ministry of Transportation absolutely should be looking at already, is how we are going to appropriately regulate self-driving vehicles. Uh, it happens in the trucking industry because it's another way for them to increase their safety uh, and worker safety and also decrease their costs. They've got other costs going up. So they're seeing, you know, further automation as another way to reduce labor costs. Well, can we, can we reduce the uh, the steady march of increasing convenience when it comes to this? I mean, there's a, there's a, a ban of um, self-checkout uh, machines that, that people are trying to get others on board of because it's taking away jobs from, from people. Um, but as far as like, well, is this, you know, just cause you, you don't, you don't want people to lose their jobs here. doesn't mean that it's not going to happen because uh, it, it's cheaper to have self checkout machines. It'll be cheaper to have, um, self-driving cars. Um, it, it also very likely is going to be a whole lot safer, um, but at the same time here, what you're running against are these are the vested interests, which is the fact that people have jobs and people vote based on um, having jobs. So that the, the, the march of convenience here is really going to be up against um, the constituencies of uh, that are created and catered to um, in order to keep people's livelihoods, essentially. But I mean, it's, it's kind of is it sort of like, you know, technology versus Luddite? And it's interesting that you just brought up that word, because one of the issues that I have is exactly that, is that we are not going to stop technology from going forward. And then you actually have to question why we would, because when you bring up that it's the march of convenience, uh, what we have lost sight of is that technology and industry and all of the mechanization that came along with it were supposed to increase human leisure. So this focus on work and this focus on people having jobs and this focus on keeping people in grocery stores, working as cashiers, spending eight hour shifts on their feet, checking people's groceries out. Why are we making people emulate machines? Why are we making them spend eight hours of their day doing something that a machine could do perfectly well? Yeah. We could pay people to maintain the machines. That's a higher level job. So we're actually, you know creating more work but at a much higher skill level we don't need to have people emulate a, a check yeah, a scanner well, it's, it's it's the same thing though with with these uh, big tech companies here they actually hire like for the amount of money that they generate um it's a very small small number of people um and it's not creating jobs now there's the gig economy of ride hailing um but Mark, we don't want to have, have to have people have gigs either because there's all kinds of other socially productive things that people can do. So when we talk about yeah. uh, care within the realm of the home, so whether that's for children, whether that's for other family members, whether that's for, I mean, family members of all generations taking care of each other. Uh, when you look at the amounts of nonprofit societies, uh, societies that depend on volunteers and the amount of volunteerism that there is in our community is unfortunately on the decline. And it's not necessarily because people don't want to contribute, but it's because of the constraints on their time. So what would be really, really interesting to see would be to see what people would be able to do with their time if you gave them something like a basic income, where they can then go and they can invest their time in something that's not just standing and being a scanning machine in a grocery store for a drudgery of eight hours a day, or maybe they're really happy at their job and they love it and that's eight hours a day that they are excited about. But at the same time, they could be making that choice and making a choice to be working, making a choice to be taking care of their family, making a choice to be 
uh, part of a volunteer organization, making a choice to get politically engaged, making a choice to, you know, really contribute to their community in all kinds of ways. So when it comes to being engaged and staying engaged with your community, uh, transportation actually really touches on this. And that's something that we've really seen with the cancellation of Greyhound in the province. Uh, it has been a massive debate. What is going to happen? Greyhound um, has said that after years and years of lowering, um, after years and years of not getting the same kind of income off of their roots, um, running deficits, 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 something like $70 million that they've lost at this point, uh, they've said that's, that's it. We can't we can't continue to support this as our business model. They're pulling back service. Uh, it's being pulled back out of British Columbia, out of the prairies, out of Northern Ontario. So it's it's actually a national transportation issue. And uh, the federal government has definitely stepped in, uh, at least visibly. Uh, Justin Trudeau has tasked his Minister of Transportation with looking into the issue and seeing what ways forward there are to make sure that uh, we maintain some level of access to community. Uh, we're looking at people that are living in rural communities that could be cut off with the loss of Greyhound. We're looking at people that already have accessibility issues like seniors, people of different levels of ability that are concerned that they're going to be losing a service that they rely on. Now you brought up a really interesting point by mentioning that $70 million deficit they're at, because my understanding from watching the, the NDP talk about this is they were blindsided by this. They had no idea that Greyhound was going to be failing. So how do they how do they run a deficit and the NDP doesn't know what's going on? Well, it's harder to understand how they wouldn't know what was going on when seven months ago Greyhound sat down and told them what was going on. Uh, it was after the NDP took power, so it's not something that they can put on the BC Liberals as having ignored and looked away from and slid under the rug, although, you know, that if it had been a different time frame, um, may have been the case. But seven months ago, they were definitely in control of government and had access to this information. So it is a little interesting to see the Minister of Transportation come out and say that she was absolutely blindsided. Uh, it sounds like they had months to be planning and preparing because it's unreasonable to think that a company is just going to continue to lose tens of millions of dollars and not figure out either a way to support that service or to make a plan for what's going to happen when that service inevitably ends. So right now um, they are looking at uh, getting some bids, uh, getting some sort of uh, uh, competition to replace uh, Greyhound. Um, do you think that there's a responsibility for the government to take on something that was previously provided by the private sector is no longer feasible for them um, in, in, uh, for the returns that they're getting, so they divest themselves. Is this a, is a responsibility for government to step in and invest this as, as essentially an infrastructure? So it's interesting that you bring that up. Now, Washington State has actually been saying that they have had a similar experience and are trying to share some of the practices that they went through. So uh, Washington State had Greyhound pull out, and what they did was they put together... Um, what is essentially private companies running the service, but they are running it underneath of a government-funded program. So they all have a single place where they publish their route information. They ensure that their routes match up so that people can make connections rather than uh, being inconveniently placed so that you would have you know, gaps in your service. Um, and Although I believe that fares can constitute about 50% of the income, there is another uh, several million dollars a year that is 
distributed by the state of Washington from the federal government. So having the federal government already said that they you know, need to look at how they are going to have a solution for this, I think that it is absolutely appropriate for British Columbia to look at the federal government as a potential source of funding for subsidizing routes to areas that otherwise aren't going to be really economically feasible. Uh, some of the cities that are involved have already said that, you know, they're they're pretty secure. They have other services that are available, uh, particularly in the Fraser Valley, like they have other services that their residents can use. But uh, the mayors there are actually saying they, they're very concerned about the people in the northern and rural BC that aren't going to have those same options available. So this is something that uh, $4.5 billion from the Trudeau government probably would uh, would go a long way to resolving, right? I think we should ask uh, Trudeau for some <coughs> of this uh, new oil pipeline money. You know, they're going to ram through a pipeline for us so uh, they can fund our transportation, right? Is that a, is that a fair yeah, trade off? $4.5 billion would go quite a long way to uh, resolving <laughs> transportation issues. But I think, Christina, uh, by mentioning like Washington State and, and how they went about it, because I had no idea, sorry, I had no idea that that had happened, um, makes a lot of sense. And it makes sense for BC, because when Greyhound pulled off the island, the Tofino Bus Company expanded so they could run the routes from Victoria up island. Um, and so if we are, if Greyhound is pulling out and these other companies are left to just to fill it in on their own, we can't guarantee the same sort of coverage. So if there's a provincial coordination to it, we can actually make sure that people have the accessibility, that BC is covered, and that people are able to get, get around the province and access their right to freedom of mobility. Well, and it's not even just freedom of mobility, but it's also making sure that people are secure when they're being transported. Um, with the Highway of Tears coming first at the top of mind when thinking about uh, security and transportation and, and the importance that there's actually services available. Now, um, from what I understand from recent media reports after this Greyhound cancellation, uh, because of the provincial government's work on this area, they actually say that there are transportation options that are still going to be available for the Highway of Tears. Like, And that really does show that we can put a focus and make sure that the provincial government steps in and ensures both access and safety for people and their transportation options and, and making sure that people stay connected with their communities. Um, these small towns, a lot of the time, it's wonderful life. It is an absolutely wonderful life to live in a small town in rural British Columbia. Uh, but it, those, those so corridors I, and those connections with your family at other parts of British Columbia and maintaining those is also very important. I mean, we already see that uh, we have rural flights that are subsidized to make sure that people have air access to their families. Uh, we could definitely see that road access could be subsidized as well and fall within that same kind of model and under the same understanding that we're doing this as a service for British Columbians to make sure that British Columbians have equal access to transportation, equal safety in their transportation options, uh, and can stay engaged with their community and with their family. So I've, I've talked to people, though, who think that, well, you know, if it's not if it's not profitable, then it's not worth doing. If you live on an island that it's not easy to get to because the private uh, sector can't accommodate you, then move. Why, I mean, is that, you know, a, a, a challenge of ideology or is that is that actually rather practical? Probably a challenge of ideology, but also a challenge of greed. You know, people people are motivated by money sometimes and that's all they care about. But I think when Christina brought up the Highway of Tears, that's a, a really crucial point to this that I hadn't thought of when we started this discussion. But we need to make sure that, that Canadians are safe going from, from town to town. You know, the fact that we, we have a highway called the Highway of Tears in Canada uh, it, it's it's really quite shameful. So I think that if we don't do something about that to make sure people are safe, um, we should we should hang our heads in shame.
And I mean, really taking the most bare bones, does this make money, does this not make money approach isn't actually what government is for. Uh, I'd really like to point out that that is not the purpose of government. The purpose of government is to manage commonly owned resources and make sure that they are appropriately distributed to everyone. It is not the purpose of government to make money. So that that is not necessarily the only factor the government is considering. That's not to say that um, it's not good to look at a balance sheet and make a business plan and understand where money is coming from and going to. But that's not actually how we need to be looking at setting priorities in public services. Um, I think that it's uh, really important that we understand that there are other social goals that uh, we have that are not just a single bottom line. Like even as Greens, we're looking at a triple bottom line of, of economic and environmental and social so that we can make sure that businesses are truly sustainable because it is not sustainable to only look at one of those factors and not to consider the social implications and not to consider the environmental implications, which is why we also might want to consider um, how we're prioritizing different carriers like are they meeting environmental goals and social goals as well as meeting the economic or, or rather as well as mm -hmm. you know meeting a basic economic um, efficiencies so that you know what your subsidies are going to be and you have a plan for that and your ministry of transportation knows how much they're going to be putting into maintaining um a connection of transportation network for rural British Columbians. Yeah, so I, I think what you're touching on is uh, is good, but I, other other ideas, outlooks, opinions do exist, and they have historically found their uh, found their ways into the heads of people who with a lot of power and have um, historically held more sway than maybe the vision that you've given out here. Because uh, what, one of the things that I, I think you're touching on um, is the facilitation. Uh, of having that conversation about how to accrue common resources and, and um, how to manage that. Um, it's, it's about leading that kind of dialogue and facilitating that dialogue, which is something you're talking about the Ministry of Transportation doing. Is there something like that currently right now where people can make their, make their views known about uh, what transportation can do? Well, the NDP government is great at consulting the public, Mark. They've got lots of different uh, consultations going on right now. Um, if you live close to the Mackenzie Interchange, for instance. They've got a consultation up about that. There are, in fact, a list on the government's website of different transportation projects that they are more than happy to hear your feedback about. Uh, but speaking of you know, the Ministry of Transportation and, and how we want to actually look at different types of benefits when we're looking at projects, uh, they've also decided to do something very interesting with a lot of those projects that they have consultations on. Uh, they are moving to a union-only construction model. Now, this is something that we saw with the NDP government in the 1990s on Vancouver Island when there was an expansion to the island highway network. Uh, and so that's being brought up as, you know, well, how does this compare? Um, we had this happen in the 1990s. Now the same model is being proposed by another NDP government. Um, there are concerns that that will actually increase the costs on projects. And there, there's a dispute on how much that could increase the costs. So in the 1990s, the uh, BC Liberals at the time put a report together looking at the costs before the project was actually completed. So it's important to note that they didn't actually have the final figures at that point. Uh, and they determined that labor costs were increased by 38%. Uh, now, that's disputed because not only was it um, labeled as being a partisan report, 
um, but the numbers weren't final that they were working with, so it would be impossible for them to actually accurately say what had happened. So the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives uh, in 2000 actually did a study on the same thing, on how the union-only construction model worked on Vancouver Island. They were very positive about it. They said that it actually brought enormous benefits to the community and um, it, was, it was very well run. Uh, the Auditor General at the time, even though there were always concerns about cost. Um, the Auditor General at the time did find that they were getting good value for their money. So when Premier Horgan comes forward and says, you know, he understands that um, that there are going to be increased costs, and at the same time, we want to be investing in our communities, we want to be investing in our workers, we want to be investing in the places that we live, and that all of those increased costs are going to lead to increased social benefits. Well, a huge social benefit, I would think, is, is making sure our workers are more protected. Um, I've got friends uh, in university who are paying for it by, uh, by working construction jobs, and they've worked for, for subcontractors on a site. And this one time in particular, my friend was telling me about it, but a, a crane carrying a big heavy load just went across a, a building and just scraped along the entire roof that they had been working on just the previous day. And then the next day, they basically get a warning of like, oh, watch out, watch out for cranes. Like nothing basically got done about it. And like he could have, he could have died right then and there. Like it doesn't matter if you have workers comp or anything. Like if you, if you get killed, like that's, that's the end of it. Like we need to make sure, you know, that, that workers are protected. And one way, way of doing that is through, is through unions. Uh, I, I take a look at this from the perspective of, of what, what has been public opinion on, on union membership and unions. Um, people who are in unions uh, tend to see the benefits of, of being in them. Um, but there's been a long history of demonizing unions um, and uh, trying to argue that there's more freedom, more benefits in being an independent bargainer of your own labor power and, and how much money you can make. Um, the problem with that, though, is uh, when you're an independent person, you can get run as an individual, you can get run over, which is mm -hmm. why I mean, look at the reason why unions came about in the first place here was uh, uh, capitalism was really coming into its own in the 19th century. Um, and uh, a, a lot of people were being harmed um, and dying as a result of a lack of safety regulations, as a lack of uh, uh, the ability to exert political power um, at an equal level as the employers and, and producers, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, captains of, of industry. Um, so unions came about as a, as a, a response to severe problems, um, but they, like any other organization, can grow bloated, they can stop innovating, they can stop being about what is going to grow the business or, or work in partnership with the, uh, with the owners of, uh, of the business or the industry. Um, and that also feeds into this Cold War narrative of anything that's about communalism um, is inherently going to destroy society, and we've been fed that for over three generations. So now that's a very important psychological facet in people's minds when we talk about unions, um, especially in, in the court of public opinion. My first job was a union job. It was good to get more wages. I knew exactly what benefits I had. I knew exactly how my hours were going to be determined. I could see the path up. Um, I would definitely agree, Mark, that there are problems with unions as there are with all organizations. Um, it's kind of inherent that you get some things that just don't really work. Um, and Nathan, um, when we're talking about worker safety and unions, I, I absolutely agree that that's one of the things that unions have been designed to do. And uh, when it comes to workers' compensation, the best compensation really is going home in one piece yeah. every time. Um, yeah. ev anything else is, is 
suboptimal. Uh, they, they might be able to take an insurance company and parse out, you know, how much each individual finger on your hand is worth to them, but that's not really how it works as a human. So uh, it, it, it's interesting to me that the BC NDP have decided to design this around a new crown corporation. Um, they are bringing it right into government. Uh, the crown corporation will actually be involved with things like HR and doing payroll and um, getting people into one of the 19 government approved unions that you're allowed to join if, for instance, you work for a subcontractor, uh, according to the way that it would work, they would still be allowed to bid on projects. It would just be that if they won the bid, all of their workers would then be signed up to one of the 19 government approved unions that are international unions that um, have agreed to take on you know, whoever is going to join from the construction industry in British Columbia. So it's it's an interesting design. It doesn't mean that everybody on a single workplace would necessarily be a part of the same union either. So that it <laughs> causes some questions in my mind as to how these people are going to be effectively advocated for if there is, um, I, I agree with freedom of choice, but if everybody on a work site has chosen 19 different unions, if you're working on a, a, for a company that has 19 employees, I mean, that's going to be an interesting bargaining position. So I, I can see where they're getting a crown corporation that is then managing that relationship, but it's it's still a really it's a really interesting business model to kind of try to come about and come at this problem of like how we're going to increase social benefits and, and make sure that workers get paid better wages on construction sites. Well, I think even if you're, you're split up into these different unions, you're still, you're still better off being able to argue as a collective. I've, I've never worked for a union and I've often gone, gone up against my bosses asking for, for better protective gear, for not having to sign averaging agreements to sign over overtime hours. And it's, it's next to impossible by myself to affect anything. I was working at uh, Silver City and Tilka Mall, shout out to them, uh, because they wouldn't buy us anti-fatigue mats. So I would bug my managers just about every single day I was there. They would have us stand for eight hours. We can't sit down. And I, I would go home and my knees were sore. And I'm like, I am a teenager. Like, this is not supposed to be happening to me. And I would ask them every single day. I looked up uh, workers' uh, websites to make sure that, like, yeah, like, they are supposed to be providing this for us. But uh, nothing, nothing happened. I didn't make anything come of it. And so like, I, I would have loved more support from my coworkers or a, a larger collective of workers as well. And I think that one of the other interesting ways that they're going to try to increase support to people is that one of the stated objectives is to actually increase the number of uh, women and Indigenous people and other people from underrepresented groups in the construction trades and in the industry. So uh, it's been part of the direction that education in, in British Columbia has been going. And there's a, there's a good reason for it. We have a huge skilled labor shortage. We don't actually have enough people in the trades to do all of the building projects that are being proposed. Uh, in the capital region, this is really affecting housing and housing affordability because there are only so many people that can build so many units so quickly in order to house everyone. I mean, we can see technological advances with uh, new types of fabrication like uh, CLT, other types of mass timber products where they can get a building up really quickly, but there's still only so many workers to be able to put those buildings up. So getting people into the trades, uh, especially with a lot of people being concerned about uh, the numbers that will be aging out in the future, uh, getting people into apprenticeships and getting those apprentices enough hours on construction sites has been a really big focus. Uh, and there's also been a big focus on getting women into the trades. There's a new center that just opened on the Lower Mainland that is focused on women in the trades and, and building connections and creating support networks and, and actually, you know, being a 
place where people can congregate and ideas can be shared and there can be uh, a lot of support built that way. Uh, it's interesting though because there still needs to be a big cultural shift in construction for that actually to work. So you can have these aspirational goals, um, but if you don't actually have the people fill, that are able to fill the positions, then it's really tough to actually make that work. So with women in the trades, there are women that go into the trades and we, we do actually have uh, support in place at places like Camosun College. Uh, there's a group that works there that supports women in the trades as well. Uh, but there are still cultural barriers that see women drop out faster. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with things like sexual assault and harassment, a lot of sexual harassment and uh, a culture that is just hostile. So that, that hostile workplace where people feel more isolated uh, and feel that they don't really fit in and tend to go and find something else that they can do. Now, we want to overcome that. And I really applaud the BCNDP for trying to increase the diversity of the workforce and make sure that there's opportunities for people that maybe haven't had those opportunities before, especially in a growing, burgeoning construction industry, um, a place where you can have a steady job and a good paycheck and be a skilled laborer um, and, you know, make investments in yourself and, and education. Um, but there really needs to be a lot of support that goes along with that. You're talking about uh, a cultural shift towards uh, women in the workplace and particularly in uh, in the trades, uh, but there's also been a cultural attitude about manual labor that's been ongoing for many decades here where it's we've devalued it. And there's places in Europe here where you can't, if you're going to go to university for a liberal arts degree, you also need to take up a trade. If you're And there's also denominational schools like in uh, Germany where um, if you're a teacher, they, they have a lot more say, they have their uh, uh, involvement in your life. Um, they're able to see that, okay, this kid is going to be, uh, you know, better. He's not going to be do well in, in an academic sense here, but he's really good at being creative and putting things together. We can, we can sort of guide him more towards, uh, the denomination of, uh, of working in trades. Um, whether or not that's a good system, we can, we can argue about that because that's really like, uh, you know, what's up with the teacher. Um, and there's been uh, a conflict between say parents, um, that don't agree with what the, the teacher is, uh, is recommending, um, or, or, you know, guiding the kid towards. Um, but again, there's different examples here of, uh, how people have approached the trades because it's like the... My brother and I, we, we call them dad skills. Like if you can fix, if you can build things like it's because we, we have a dad who's, who's worked as a, a laborer and uh, is very mechanically minded. Um, and there's, there's a absolute benefit to being able to do things yourself here. Um, but we've, we've been looking down at that. You should be, you're supposed to be a professional. You're supposed to be someone who uses your head. You're supposed to be a knowledge worker. Um, and it's to the point where we've made it so dirty to work with your hands uh, that we're actually kind of reaping the whirlwind in that sense right now. Okay. I mean, we, and we kind of talked around, around it, but what it yeah. really comes down to is, is class. I mean, there are, are longstanding class divisions between people that work with their hands and people that don't work with their hands. And in the society that we're literally building right now, those divisions are uh, really holding us back in some ways. I don't think that people really understand um, the gravity of it when we actually have uh, people fighting to keep people as cashiers and scanning things when we could have that done by a machine really easily, but we don't have enough people that are actually able to build buildings that we desperately need, like homes for people. 
Um, and it really does come back to that idea that, that there needs to be a cultural shift. So I really want to see where the BCNDP is going to go with this and how they're actually going to support that kind of a change. Like what kind of funding model is there? Uh, it's not just about having higher wages for workers. It's not just about putting in a number of we want to see this percentage of people represent this group, but you actually have to be have found those people early on, have supported them all the way through a process uh, and have a funding model that's actually going to keep them there. Yeah, I, I think it's been very fascinating this episode how we've gone to talking about like the role of job and work. Um, to access for people that are, are often overlooked, um, to the role of education and as well as class. Um, part of it, I, I mean, it's, there, there's even a, a dumber logic to, to how we viewed education and work with our hands and all that. It's, it's about, um, again, going back to that, like if, if it's not going to turn a profit, if it's not going to make you money, then it's not what we're doing. And there's a lot of that here when we look at, say, something like the liberal arts. So if we're going to talk about, you know, what the role of work is, what the role of a human being is when things are so automated that they're not actually needed anymore. So we're talking about a post-scarcity uh, society, then that's where basic income comes in here, where we're looking at it as though what is the point of being alive on this planet here when all these basic things here have been done and what is the role of, of uh, society? Um, so if everybody had a basic income, they'd be able to pursue their art, their passion, their liberal arts degrees, um, or they'd be able to build things, right? So like that, that option would also be available uh, to them. But we've, we've kind of devalued education in a weird way uh, where we fetishized the amount of money you're going to make here. So if you're going to get a philosophy degree, well, what the hell are you going to do with that? Are you going to be a really good barista? Um, so it's, and, and it kind of gears people, but it also has to do with like the, the expenses required in order to get an education here, that if it's not going to, so that kind of mindset is also affected by the policies we have in place. Because if we didn't have a policy, um, if we didn't have this, a policy era, if we didn't have a framework where uh, education was so expensive to obtain, um, then there wouldn't be this weird kind of cannibalistic outlook of if it's not going to turn a profit, then it's not worth doing. Well, I think that it definitely feeds into that. I'm not sure if I would agree that there would never be that because, I mean, that that kind of very capitalist logic has been with us for longer than we've been looking at liberal arts. And the, I, I never said way. never, but like the, I, I understand like there's we would have it on a less like if we're looking at a scale of one to 10 or something, it wouldn't be the eight it is right now here where it's like, what the hell are you going to do with that degree here? Why don't you do something useful? And of course, whatever is useful is also based on like what's going on right now here. Right. So like STEM and, and certain things and that, but then we have like a big glut of people with STEM degrees and they can't find um, work in, in the fields. And so there's, there's also, it touches on different things. Um, Cause you also have like one thing I would love to see is more entrepreneurial, and trying to get people to think about creatively doing their own businesses and trying to figure out how to like uh, uh, innovate from this existing economy into something else or something in, uh, um, you know, novel or original or something that is just for them, not necessarily tethered to what the current marketplace has for you, because that's that's a lot of people are now working to survive, working to live. Um, in an economy that doesn't really give a damn about them. It's, it just exists to do its own thing. It's an engine. Well, if you're interested in uh, increasing the entrepreneurial spirit of Canada, which is what's interesting is there's research that what's interesting is there is research that shows that uh, Canadian entrepreneurs are more uh, more innovative and more willing to take risks because we have a, a greater social safety net than the United States, right? We have our health care, we have uh, pretty pretty good welfare system. 
Um, but if we had a, a basic guaranteed income, I mean, just imagine how many more risks they could be, be willing to take, how much more they could go out and venture out. Um, it would just be, it would be amazing to see what we could get from a business aspect. But I also know people, um, and I volunteered with them on campaigns, who would just love to be a part of, of community theater, you know, and just, just trying to make culture, make art, be a part of that, build the community uh, through their art and through, through being in theater in particular for the one guy I'm thinking of right now. Um, and it would just be, it would just be so wonderful to see how the culture could flourish if we supported, supported Canadians through a basic income as well. And that's where you really see the value coming through. Cause now we're not just talking about a bottom line of money, but now we're talking about what kind of value we can be getting, um, from making these investments. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people who, uh, want to exist doing nothing and I, I'm tempted to think I that disagree with you, Mark. Actually, I disagree with you. I'm going to just flat out disagree with you. I'm going to disagree with you based on evidence and research uh, because they have done evidence on research. Okay, hold on, on, hold on. No, no, no. I'm not saying like there's a lot of people who just want to leech and just be parasites. Okay, but let's, but let's talk lazy. about, let, let's talk numbers. Like, I mean, if you're going to make a statement like that, let's actually talk numbers no, because no, no, this because... is a common thread that comes up is it's a fear mm-hmm. that if we give people a basic income, they won't do anything. They will be lazy. They will sit at home. They will not be productive members of society. And so yeah. when we say there's lots of people, but well, I actually, it's about that 8%. Number is actually, that number is actually really tiny. I think it's a lot tinier. I, I think what happens is people inflate this number. It's like, well, people will just do nothing with their lives and they'd be parasites. And it's about 8%. That number is absolutely inflated. My point is I don't care. Like, why should we care that someone doesn't want to do anything with their lives here? That's fine. If they don't want to do anything with it, I'm, I'm very libertarian about this here where it's like, okay, well, if they want to... What basic income does is it gives them, uh, you know, this baseline here. If they want to do more with their lives, they can. If they don't want to do anything, if they want to ruin it doing drugs, if they want to, you know, be completely... Ruin it, hey? Uh, well, no, they can. It depends what drug you're doing. Um, but, <laughs> but it's that people do actually want a purpose in their lives. But I think what we do is we're inflating we're inflating the our, our worst stigmas about poor people um, to, and extending it to like, well, if we probably have basic income, then everybody's just going to be a, a, a layabout, um, a poor person. Um, whereas what we actually see is we actually see people investing their time in their family and their community. When they do basic income experiments, what we actually see is we see people investing more money or more time. Um, but they yeah. do have more money. So they do also invest more money, okay. but they, but they get to invest more money and more time in their family and in their community. Okay. Look, I'll, I'll concede that I didn't start that out as, uh, maybe as, um, airtight a statement as I could have made here. Um, there, when we, cause we're talking about, you know, populations and there's, there's going to be a segment of the population that are, are not going to propel themselves in life that don't see that. Like there, there's going to be some margin of that, right? Like there, there has to be. Um, as and in any population, transporting themselves around British Columbia, <laughs> right? <laughs> Propelling themselves into a bright future. Uh, and part of that hopefully is going to be ride hailing legislation that we will see at some point. And maybe it will even be implemented at some point after that. Um, all of those timeframes are, well, I mean, we know that we're going to see legislation in the fall and it will be great to actually have something on the books where we've got some legislation in place that people can start to get some certainty on what that looks like. Uh, and that's certainty for the taxi industry, that's certainty for ride hailing companies, that's certainty for British Columbians, uh, and then start looking at what that regulatory framework is going to look like. Um, less certainty, obviously, on how we're going to keep British Columbians connected uh, in rural British Columbia with Greyhound. Um, it's going to be 
uh, interesting to see what choices the BCNDP government makes at this point, uh, and also to see how the Trudeau Liberals handle this. They are also going into an election year, and this is an issue that touches a lot of Canada. So it's not just British Columbia that's affected by the Greyhound issue, but it's also our neighbors in Alberta and Manitoba and Saskatchewan and Northern Ontario. So uh, it actually affects a huge chunk of Canadians. Uh, and seeing how the Liberals deal with that in what's coming up to an election year is going to be really interesting, as we've talked about, you know, it would be wonderful if the federal government was willing to actually jump in and subsidize so that people in rural Canada have access to the transportation that they need. Uh, well, it's always nice to see what an election year budget looks like. There's usually all kinds of goodies in it. So we'll see if transportation is one of the ones that we get from the federal government this time around. Uh, and then in British Columbia itself, uh, we'll see how the Ministry of Transportation is going to handle uh, their brand new way of constructing all those projects. If you do want to make yourself known, go to engage.gov.bc.ca, find yourself a con the transportation project that you're most interested in and give the government your feedback. They are listening right now. Uh, and I think that that's where we are going to leave it for today. Uh, again, my name is Christina. This is West Coast Views. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. And thank you so much, Nathan, uh, for being on the show with me today. Uh, I really enjoyed being uh, chatting with both of you. And uh, I think we had a really great conversation. Looking forward to next time. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can write to Mark. He is on the hot seat. So that's going to be Mark at westcoastviews.ca. Again, that's Mark at westcoastviews.ca. If you have any questions, uh, gripes, complaints, definitely send them on to me here. I'd be happy to pass them on, read out your questions uh, next time, and, and uh, we'll have an answer for that. Ooh, I'm really looking forward to that section. Actually, now that you've made that commitment, please do write into Mark. I would love to read out your questions and comments and see what we can say about them. I agree. I can't wait for this new segment. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate the, uh, the innovation you just brought to this podcast. <laughs> All right. Once again, thanks so much, everybody. Uh, signing off for today, Christina and West Coast Views. Hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful week. Thanks, Christina.